steady persistence in a course of action, especially in spite of difficulties. Steady persistence in a course of action, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement, is a definition of perseverance. The dictionary tells us this is a definition of perseverance. Steady persistence in a course of action, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. It's a helpful definition, a very basic definition, and it helps us capture the idea that we'll be talking about this morning in Hebrews 12, and that is Christian perseverance. Hebrews 12 is a great place to bring us up to speed in understanding what Jesus Christ calls us to do even amidst difficulties in this world. And that would be to persevere. We're to continue to trust in Him without wavering. We're to be trusting in Him. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. And we're going to do this as an act of worship toward Him. Christian perseverance. If you'd like an outline this morning, you can write down six different points as we look at drawing six conclusions about Christian perseverance. Three negative statements and three positive statements, but really it's all about the matter of perseverance. And just to help acclimate you or remind you, uh, in the book of Hebrews, we have uh, a broad group being addressed, professing Christians, but they're facing the difficulties of life, whether it be through persecution or other forms of suffering. And they're in a place in their lives where they are struggling with whether or not they will continue to follow Christ. What Hebrews does so wonderfully, like no other book I know, it continues to hold Christ up high as sufficient, as supreme, as our trustworthy high priest who brings perfect reconciliation to God. Hebrews keeps reminding us of this so that we will not go elsewhere for atonement, so that we will not go elsewhere for reconciliation, so we will continue to trust only in Him but no doubt throughout the whole letter, you sense that there's a temptation. That there is a real hardship, a real difficulty, a real discouragement. And there is this temptation, at least among some in the church, in the body, to walk away. And so it's a very serious letter in exalting Christ and holding Christ up. And it emphasizes here perseverance. It's not okay to simply pray the sinner's prayer and have fire insurance, but you can walk away from Jesus. As a matter of fact, while we've seen Christ, it's all Christ. It's not what we do. It's not a partnership between our works and His works. It's all Him. But what we've also seen throughout Hebrews is, if you have that kind of faith and you're truly trusting in Christ, it is going to be a persevering faith. It will continue. Let me just highlight one place that will be helpful in understanding this in the book, and that's in chapter 3. If you go to chapter 3, there's a strong warning about persevering. These warnings are so strong that some have concluded that you can lose your salvation. And I don't think that's what Hebrews is emphasizing. I don't think we can lose what we ourselves never gained. It's all of Christ. And yet at the same time, you can have a faith that's not a genuine faith that won't last. And instead of making it all nice and neat, there are these strong warnings and, and, and saying you've got to continue. You've got to keep embracing Christ. And that shows genuine faith. 
In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, we read these words, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And here's what I really wanted you to see. And we are his house. We are his dwelling. And this is all positive and great. And this is what we want. And then he very seriously, soberly says, if indeed we hold fast, or if indeed we continue, or if indeed we persevere, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, if we continue to embrace Christ, and there's meant to be this uncomfortableness. Continue to look to Christ as your sufficient Savior. But if you don't, there are severe consequences. And we read about them in chapter 12. And chapter 12 elaborates on this. And positively, it tells us and, and pushes us to continue. It's worth it. Do it. Persevere to the very end. Continue to abide if you will, and show yourselves to having to, to be one who is genuinely trusted in the sufficient Savior. So let's get down to it and let's begin working our way through these six conclusions about Christian perseverance so that we would persevere to the glory of Christ. Number one, perseverance is not without example. It's not without example. We see this in the first verse. We see it in all of chapter 11. But look at the first verse and a feel the, the, the moving appeal that it is. Verse 1 so magnificently says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud, so great a multitude of witnesses. And then he's going to call us to persevere. But just feel this, this grandness. Therefore, in light of chapter 11 and all those Saints we've heard about who persevered even in the midst of difficulty. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this massive multitude of witnesses, where we get our English word martyr for suffering for the faith, we're surrounded by this great, massive multitude of martyrs, people who've suffered in, in light of being faithful and persevering. It's a great, great picture. In this light of so many of them. And the images that they're cheering us on. We learned about Moses. We learned about Abraham. We learned about Rahab. And they're there to say, you're not without example. You say, my life is hard and circumstances are the worst ever. Jesus, I thought you loved me. We are not without martyrs as examples. Remember that. Remember the great hall of faith that they were perseverant in their faith, trusting in God through the hard stuff since we've got such a great crowd who've gone before us and they are saying, you could do it. Come on. Don't give up. He says then in verse 1, let us also, so like them, Lay aside, strip off every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run, literally continue to run and keep on running with endurance or endurance the race that is set before us. I just love the feel of the whole verse. And, and, and it is meant to be inspirational. It's meant to be motivational. Yeah! Remember history. And what's so interesting is this is written to a first century congregation and now we're 21st century. We've got a couple of thousand of years of more Christian martyrs who didn't deny the faith even though things got really hard. And we could add to the number. The great cloud, the multitude is even bigger than it used to be. Remember that. 
Remember that when you're being shamed because of your devotion to Jesus. Remember that when life stinks. And it would seem like it wouldn't stink because after all, you've trusted in the sovereign one of the whole universe. Doesn't he even care? Remember the great massive multitude saying, keep trusting in God. And remember, they were, quite frankly, you read about their stories, on a lot of levels, misfits. Some were great leaders, yes. Others weren't. It's variant for our benefit. And they're in the Colosseum, if you will, in the auditorium, saying, persevere, keep going. We did it, and look who we are. I love the feel of it. I love the sound of it. I hope you do as well. Do notice the image. Lay aside every weight. This is what they did. They laid aside every weight, any kind of hindrance. It's nice that he leaves it very big and very broad. It's all-inclusive. Whatever's going to slow you down in running a race, you've got to get rid of it. Okay? Marathoners don't wear backpacks, right? With dumbbells in them. <laughs> and so whatever's going to slow you down and get in your way, you've got to get rid of it. If it's going to distract you from persevering and following Christ and trusting in Christ, whatever that is, you've got to set it aside. And then he also includes sin, which is obviously going to be a distractor. If anything's going to distract you from persevering and trusting in Christ, it's your sin. And, and he's saying you've got to get rid of that too. You've got to strip down, literally is what he's saying. I like it that he doesn't give us a list. I'm not going to give you a list. I'm not going to turn it into legalism. You pray for wisdom. You look at your life. What is hindering you from pursuing after a life that glorifies Jesus Christ, the one who bought you out of the slave market of sin? And he's saying, you've got to be like that runner who wears those dorky little shorts. can't believe I said that. <laughs> because it's about finishing the race. And quite frankly, at that level... You don't care what you look like. You're a runner and you entered the race to finish the race and not be laughed at because you wanted to look cool in the between time and you're never going to finish. Learn from those who've run before you. Oh, I need to get the shorts. All right. Dude. <laughs> Learn from the great cloud of witnesses. If you're going to finish the race, you're going to get rid of the stuff. I love it. I love it that we're hearing this. Again, please don't misunderstand. The letter has emphasized again and again, it's all of Christ. It's not about your Christian perseverance that somehow earns the favor of God. But if Christ has earned the favor of God on your behalf, you will continue to trust in Him. And you won't trust in something else, someone else, even in self. And you won't deny Him. You'll continue to embrace Him. But part of that means here we have effort. And you say, I don't know how this works. Well, where does the work of God and the work of man begin and end? Well, I can guarantee you that salvation is all the work of God. No perspiration in justification, to put it in a trite phrase. You're, there's no efforting in, in how you gain righteousness. That's why chapter 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, it's this passive thing and it's given to us as a gift. But when we talk about, that's justification, being declared righteous, we talk about sanctification, living out and growing in maturity. There's perspiration involved. Exactly how they fit is another matter. 
But let's see these great examples and be inspired by these great examples. Just one more thing to have you notice, and and this is very important for us, and that is you don't get any sense in Hebrews 12 that he's doing a special seminar for second-level Christians. Now that you, you know, if you reached level one Christianity, we would like to invite you to an extra special seminar where you will enter it. He's talking to Christians. That sin you hold so close, get rid of it. Or whatever else. If it's keeping you from seeing Jesus as your all in all, it's got to go. Now let's move on to a second conclusion about perseverance. Perseverance is not without Christ. This seems silly to almost even say, but it probably needs to be said, and I think we see it essentially said here. Here, perseverance is not without Christ. We see it in verses 2, 3, and 4. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, I'm partial to the New American Standard Translation, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Attention, eyes, stare, gaze, riveted on Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Just great way of saying it, encapsulate it. If you're going to persevere, what do you do? You, you have your, your focus, your attention fixed on Christ is what you do. Perseverance isn't without Christ. Well, Christ is for salvation, and now I do whatever I need to do on my own. Give me more lists, Pastor. The big thing on the list is Christ. Have your attention be focused on Him. I love it that we're celebrating communion today as a fitting conclusion to the sermon because it's really going to be the high point. Because it's a God-ordained way for us to get some help in this department. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. And when, and when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, it's a reminder to us that He did it all. And it's all about Him. And he, He's the sum and substance, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we trust in Him and His righteousness. You want to persevere in the faith? Focus on Christ. Hebrews has been another great God-ordained means because it just keeps exalting Christ. It keeps exalting Christ. And we find ourselves enamored with Christ. And it makes us want to, to persevere. Yeah, that's right. He is able. He is worthy. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf. His work is done. He's a sufficient high priest. I'll keep I sound like a motivational speaker and I don't mean to. I'm trying to preach. But this is a text that's motivational, so I'm trying to motivate. You say that's right. It's no wonder we have a hard time persevering when we never focus on Christ and we have Him be a box that we check because now that we're converted, there is not really much of a need for Him. God-ordained means to perseverance as we have our attention fixed on Christ through whatever means we can possibly get our hands on. And God has given us His Word. He's given us communion. And we focus on Him through those things. The founder and perfecter of our faith. In chapter 2, verse 10, that's synonymous with our salvation. He's the founder and perfecter of our salvation. What's interesting is, is as we keep going, now he's going to talk about Jesus as the example He's the example of the one who perseveres through the hardship. And I belabor this. I hope to a fault. 
that, that salvation is not by following Jesus' example. But we must make sure we understand that as saved people, based upon his work on our behalf, we are supposed to follow him, and that does push us in perseverance, and that's what he does here. Look at verse 2 with me, if you would, where he goes on by saying, Who for the joy that was set before him, oh, this must be good, right? Joy for the great thing set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Well, that, that, that's not the joy. That's not the great part. So let's keep reading. Despising the shame. Shame, that's not a good thing either. What's the joy? Keep reading. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the joy. So be inspired by Jesus, your Savior. Remember, as I like to say so much, we call ourselves Christians. And what did Jesus do? What did Christ do? For the joy set before him, which would be exaltation, name above every name, Philippians chapter uh, 2, right hand of the Father, place of exaltation and privilege. That's the joy. What did he do? He endured, synonym, persevered. Even through the shame. He's your savior. Remember that. Remember that when your life. Is a life you don't want. Remember that when you're being put to shame. Because of your devotion to Jesus. And you'll find yourself wanting to persevere. Don't miss what he says, and I say this because I've missed it for so many years. Despising the shame. I don't know how many times I've quoted that, and it's made no sense. Despising the shame, he endured the cross. So maybe this is just for me, but let me tell you what I learned this week in Sunday school. I just never really thought about it. The cross, first century culture and surrounding times, associated with shame. If it's about one thing, the cross is shameful. It's a thing you don't talk about at dinner parties, right? You would never want to admit that you had someone you knew or were related to that was crucified. That's like the worst kind of criminal imaginable. Shame, 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 shame. Jesus, it says here, despising the shame, endured the cross. So think with me what he's saying. No one in their right mind would endure crucifixion if they could possibly avoid it. What does Jesus do? He sets his face toward Jerusalem. He goes on purpose, voluntarily, giving giving himself up for us, to quote Paul. The whole culture, everyone around him, certainly for a king, the shamefulness of being crucified, Never, ever would you want to do that in a million lifetimes. And Jesus, despising the shame, endured the cross. See? The culture says that's the worst thing imaginable, not fit for the worst of a criminal, not to mention Messiah. And Jesus hears what the culture says about the cross, knowing what his father has said about the cross, knowing what he's going to do at the cross, and he despises the message of the culture. It's pretty cool. 
Most of you already knew that, but I didn't because I've never stopped to think about it, so thanks for listening to me. Application, as you are shamed by your non-Christian antagonism or antagonist, and you're feeling shame, and you're feeling stupid, and you're feeling unworthy, and you're thinking, I, I, I don't want to go through this. You remember your Savior who despised the shame, endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. All right. Perseverance is not without Christ. It's not without His example as well. Then furthermore, verse 3, consider... That is, reason with careful thinking and deliberation. Contemplate this. Meditate on this. Consider Him. Focus on Him. It's another way of saying what He's already said in a sense. Consider Him. Focus on Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, we say we're Christians. Learn from Christ. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, this seems to be a, a, a rebuke to the first century believers here, at least, it's not super hard, but uh, at least a mild rebuke. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay, life is hard, but you know what? When we're talking about Jesus here, I don't know anyone in this context that's been actually martyred. Although that happened too, but the group he's addressing, he's saying, hey, it must not be that bad. Perseverance is not without Christ. We've got to remember Christ. It sounds so silly, doesn't it? I'm a Christian pastor in a Christian church talking to professing Christians, and I'm saying, remember Jesus, everybody. We're prone to forget. The Lord knows this. That's why He gives us so many reminders. Like I keep saying, it's why he tell, it's one of the reasons why we have communion. Because our bent is toward forgetfulness. Do this until I come. <laughs> In remembrance of me, new covenant reality. Fixing our attention, fixing our gaze on Christ, considering Christ. It, cur it promotes our perseverance, it curbs our apostasy. I love Christ for being this example to us. I hope you do as well. I think I might be able to do another, another day, you know? Just another bad day. More issues. Oh, man. I need somebody to say, consider Jesus. I need you to say, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I'll say, okay, okay, all right. I hope, I hope I don't say, who are you to preach to me? And where you'll say, I'm a Christian who loves you. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's a no-brainer, but it's what we need to be reminded of so many times. We can't assume Christ. Okay, number three. Perseverance is not without discipline. It's not without discipline. And this is in verses 5 to 11. And it's just a little simple reminder about discipline. And it's pretty straightforward. But it's important when sometimes we get this mindset, just to set it up before we read it again. We think, you know, God, you're all-powerful, all-knowing, and you say you love me. Why am I suffering? 
Okay. A little bit of reminder here, verse 5. And you have forgotten, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now he's going to quote Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And in Hebrews, we've seen Christ the son and we have sonship if we're in him. And that's what we've been celebrating and loving. And he's saying, hey, by the way, if you're a son, you're going to have discipline. Oh, yeah. I just like the cake. I just like the good stuff. But I forgot that that's part of sonship. Then verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. That's perseverance kind of talk. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's an unknown category. That doesn't even make sense. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And he uses the bad word. Who wants to be a bastard? Well, when we say, God's supposed to love and God is supposed to have all power, power. And you know what? My life just is in the toilet. And uh, 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 uh. Don't forget, you want to be a son. And with sonship comes discipline. And if everything is all just fine and there's never any tension in your life, especially because of your relationship to Christ, well, you might be happy in the here and now, but... An illegitimate child? Ah, that's not what we want. And by the way, as a, just a, as a reminder, remember sonship is, is privilege. Okay, So whether you're male or female, you want to be a son because the son is the one who inherits, the eldest son. And in Christ, we're all sons, whether we're daughters or sons. We're all sons in that we get all of the riches in Christ. But that's going to mean there's discipline. It means... There's a different way, there's a different lens through which we can see suffering. And we don't say, oh, my life is bad, circumstances are bad, I don't feel good, God must not love me. Being a Christian is not really all it's cracked up to be. Well, remember, Christianity has you following Christ as your Savior. There's going to be discipline involved. Where did we stop? Did we stop? How about verse 9? Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits? So earthly father, now the father of all, we're now in the spiritual realm and live. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but the discipline, but he disciplines us for our good and that we may share his holiness. Oh, this is for holiness or sanctification or spiritual growth and to help us in our perseverance even. Disciplines us for our good. For the moment, all discipline, verse 11 says, seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to to those who have been trained by it. He's not telling them anything they didn't know. Just reminding them. He's not telling us anything we shouldn't know. Discipline is part of being a member of the family. I don't know about you, but I sometimes think, okay, I I ask too many questions is what I do. But sometimes asking questions is helpful. And then I say to myself, well, how do I know if this is the discipline of God or just a bad circumstance? Because I live in a fallen, broken world. And I don't know how I know. But I do know that he says here that discipline is, in verse 10, for our good. 
Okay, so discipline is for our good. Now, mentally cross-reference to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where God causes all things to work together for our good. So it's kind of a moot point. Whether I can say this bad circumstance in my life is the discipline of God in my life, or it's just a bad circumstance, both are being used by good. So it becomes a moot point, and at least on one level, I'm comfortable in concluding it's all discipline from God. If he's working everything together for my good, it could all be discipline in one sense. Well, okay then. I'm not asking for more discipline. But hardship's going to come. And if it doesn't come, it's revealing something bad. It's going to come. And don't have that derail your perseverance. Have that fuel your perseverance. I will keep trusting in Christ. God is refining me. He's promoting holiness in my life. I'm going to keep seeing Christ as my all and all. And this is making more sense to me. Even though it's hard. Even though it's hard. Just as a as an aside, but it is related. This is what should cause us to conclude that, that, that when people say that being a Christian guarantees in this life you will have health and wealth and prosperity and the like, it's just such a travesty. It is such a lie. It is such deception. It is so anti-Christian. It's sickening. Just read Hebrews. Just read the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. And then that's just giving us the overview of the Old Testament. Just hear from what Jesus has to say. It's just a lie. We're promised health when we see Christ and we're made like Him and when we get glorified bodies. But to have that in the here and now makes nonsense of the New Testament. So please remember that. Remember our riches in Christ at the right hand of the Father. He has promised to return. One of the emphasis points in Hebrews is the return of Christ to alleviate suffering. But he's not telling them, you just have to have more faith so you don't have any suffering in this life and that alleviates discipline. It's not it at all. It's not it at all. We do need to remember that. Because sometimes even though we might not be the ones, we might not be, you know, glued in front of... uh, the television, watching the televangelist giving us health, wealth, and prosperity. Sometimes we don't even realize it, and we might talk and think that way, even uh, among us who don't subscribe to that. Let's be biblically literate and realize that God has shown great, great love toward godly men and women who've had to endure much suffering. Oh, and then let's not forget the cross in the room. And then we're thinking the right way. We're thinking the right way. Number four, let's turn it to the positive. Perseverance is strenuous. It is strenuous. As I mentioned, there's no perspiration in our gaining justification, but there is 
perspiration in our gaining sanctification or growth. And we see this in verses 12 to 17. Let's go at it where it says in verse 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands. Oh, I'm too tired. I can't finish this task. No, lift your drooping hands. He's commanding this to Christians and strengthen your weak knees. Don't quit. Keep going. Persevere. I know it's hard. Nobody said it wouldn't be hard. Verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So if there's already weakness, so it doesn't get worse, you're going to get strong. You're going to you're going to become able. You're going to be able to do this. Then he starts broadening it to even looking toward other people. And it's just this rapid fire series of doing hard things. So we've got the beginning, you know, in a sense, you you read verse 12 and in Greek, it means suck it up. No, it doesn't. (laughs) let's go come on don't quit then we get to verse 14 strive for peace with everyone there's your command with every he even makes it big so broad believer unbeliever you're you're striving as a christian is for peace this makes sense in light of hebrews 2 because we have peace with god through christ so if we have peace with god and now that's on the vertical level horizontal level believers have peace with each other positionally because we're going to be with him forever and we're not going to be bickering and now he even makes it broader. We're going to try to even do this with unbelievers, which is going to be the hardest of all, should be. Strive after this like an athlete. Peace with everybody. And you say, what is this doing in a perseverance list? Curbing apostasy list. That's another good question. Apparently it's part of our perseverance. It's part of our sanctification. It's one thing for me to live my Christian life alone, but now I've got to live my Christian life with other people and I've got to strive for peace with everybody. How is that going to help me to not be an apostate? Hmm. Interesting. I wouldn't have put this on my list. I would suspect it's because as we think about Christ and we're fixing our eyes on Him and we're thinking about His great peace-working power, That helps us as we think about even our relationship to other people and how we get along with other people. And the conflicts will be real, but we can't have a Christ-like attitude. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And it begins to at least make some sense. But whether it makes sense or not, it's still what the imperative is and it's still what I'm called to do. Then verse 14 gives us another one. And carrying on the striving idea and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that's one of those knee knocking verses or statements where you get a little bit of nerve, get a little bit, you get a little, get a little bit of nervous. (laughs) I got some explaining to do because I'm getting a little bit of nervous. In one level, you read that and you think, I don't think that belongs here. In our nice, neat little world where everything is nice and neat. In a persevering context, the imperative is strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In fact, some have been so uncomfortable, they've wanted to say this is positional holiness, what we have in Christ. That doesn't make any sense because this is what you're striving after. It's in a context of perseverance, a context of sanctification, spiritual growth. You strive after practical holiness without practical holiness, without which no one will see God. 
that is a verse that will get some pastors kicked out of churches and Christians kicked out of Bible studies. Because it messes with our nice, neat little package. Oh, yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I've staken my eternal destiny on it. Tried by the grace of God to have all of ministry that I might be involved in be based on it. But make no mistake about it. Genuine faith perseveres in righteousness. Practical holiness shows up as a fruit, as a result of positional holiness. And oh, by the way, if the practical holiness doesn't show up, he says, you won't see God. It's meant to take the air out of your lungs. Because again, remember the context of Hebrews. He's talking to people, bigger group, and among the bigger group, there are some who are thinking about walking away from the sufficiency of Christ. And he's saying, I'm going to help you to stay on the track and running the race. And one of the ways is I'm going to say, strive after holiness. It goes back to this idea of this sin that is so close to us that we need to get rid of if we're going to finish the endurance race. Because one way to have your eyes be focused off the sufficiency of Christ is love for sin, love for sin, love for sin. And before you know it, you love sin so much, it is your everything. It's your object of worship. This is so intense. Someone helpfully mentioned to me after the first hour, they said, well, if somebody only hears what you just said, they might think you could lose your salvation. You might think that. I know you can't. If you really have it. You say, how can I know if I really have it? Peter says, make your calling and election sure by doing the right thing. It shows. It shows in your life if there's genuine salvation. And that's what he's talking about here, surely. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See, there's a view toward other people here. It's not just, yeah, I need to persevere. I need to do the right thing. I need to pursue holiness. I need to do the right stuff. No, there's also in the Christian world uh, looking toward other people. I'm going to do my very best by the grace of God to care about somebody else enough to, to, to want to have them experience the grace of God. And remember, please remember, this is not a pastoral epistle, not a pastoral letter. Um, it's written to Christians. So I'm just speaking as a Christian. I want to do my best as a Christian. I want you to do, here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm going. I want you to do your best as a Christian. To be pushing these things, implementing these things, because we're trying, as it says here, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You've got to keep telling them about who Christ is. Keep reminding them about the sufficiency of Christ. Keep pointing them to Him. Keep challenging them. Burden for others as well. Then verse 15 says that no root of bitterness, borrowing from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
That's kind of a doozy verse. What does this have to do with perseverance? Again, we're, we're, we're sidelined. We're distracted because of sin. And he's saying one of the things is you're seeking to have people experience the grace of God and, and persevere. One of the things you have to, what does he say? Uh, he doesn't say look out for, but that's the idea. Root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble. So like a weed in the garden is the, the bitterness that comes up. But what does that do? It doesn't isolate itself and stick to itself. It causes trouble. Notice springs up so it's from inside and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Many become um, spiritually unclean. It's a, it's a nasty, dirty word for immorality. And notice the breadth of it is many. So practically speaking, on a church-level basis, curbing apostasy, promoting perseverance, he's cautioning against bitterness. Bad attitude, bitterness, you wronged me, you did something wrong to me, that's not right, I'm mad, but it doesn't stick to myself. I don't keep it to myself. Bitterness doesn't work that way. Bitterness wouldn't be so bad if I'm just all bitter by myself. Sucking my thumb. Mad at the world. Mad, in this context, at the church. What do you do? Tell other people. Bitter, 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 bitter. And what does it do? It says here, it leads to defilement. It leads to dirtiness. Causes trouble. So, in the context of perseverance, you don't want to be the bitter person that leads to other people's... You'd never imagine this, I would imagine. You don't think by your bitterness you're going to lead to someone else denying the faith. But as you sow your seeds of discord, if you have a bad attitude when somebody wrongs you, because by the way, they're gonna. And before you know it, your little seed sowing, weed sowing, is going to lead to somebody else in time eventually, used by your great ministry, they commit apostasy. And that's a bad deal you probably never even bargained for. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of faith. We do these other things as well. But I would suggest to you, connecting some dots here, that's a way to avoid the bitterness. The great thing about Hebrews is it's saying he's the Savior. Nobody else is a Savior. If you think somebody else is a Savior, you're going to be bitter. He's the Savior. Keep looking to him. But don't have a ministry of bitterness. Just think what a bummer it's been throughout Christian history, all the bitter people. I mean, if I were a, if I were a sociologist and not a Christian and I wanted to write a, a treatise on bitterness, I would start by surveying churches and church history. Some, some of the most bitter people I've ever met are Christians. Mad at the world, mad at the church. I'm the only right one. Everybody's mean to me. And you go, what? What are you talking about? The whole point is fixing your eyes on Jesus. We don't get the gospel sometimes, and we need to get the gospel, and he's emphasizing it here, and so I want to emphasize it as well. Think about what you're going to be known for when you die. I don't want to have a ministry of bitterness. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral, 
He may mean literally here because he's going to talk about that in chapter 13, and that is bad, no doubt about it. But he may also just be speaking figuratively uh, as sexual immorality is used quite with some frequency in the Bible for, for idolatry, for perversion. Okay, so you're not going to only focus on Christ. You're going to go elsewhere and supplement and add to. And he's saying, watch out for that. Or he may be talking about the actual because you, that, that's a form of sin. And if you start loving that sin so much, you're on the road to rejecting Christ. Either way, it's, it's this imperative, it's this responsibility that no one is sexually immoral. That's a responsibility we have with each other. Unlike, uh, excuse me, let's keep going, unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright, birthright for a single meal. That's how sexual immorality works. It's not going to pay off. It's going to lead to destruction. It never pays off. It always leads to destruction. But you know what? It felt good at the time, so I did it. It doesn't make any sense. It's like stealing some food. Short-lived, no good, no fruitfulness. It's just dumb. And so he's using Esau as the example for that. And then this really puzzling statement that is really downright troubling. Verse 17, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Hmm. And instead of trying to unexplain it, I'm just going to say, there you go. Don't be sexually immoral. <laughs> Literally or figuratively. Learn from Esau. You might just find yourself in a place where you thought you were going to repent eventually. You might even had some sort of desire to, but by then, it's shut down. Don't claim to understand the verse, but I don't think it's meant to be unexplained or written off. Well, let's move on. Number five, perseverance is heavenly, and I mean this literally and figuratively. He's going to contrast Sinai with Zion, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and it's deluxe. Let's just let it speak for itself. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. That is Sinai, Old Covenant, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest from Deuteronomy 4. Verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. I, I just have to quick jump in for just a second. How about that? I want God to speak to me. I want direct revelation from God. No, you don't, right? Not without a mediator. Because look of what happens when it happens. No more, God, please. We're terrified. We beg of you, don't speak to us. That's what happens. We're not, that, that, that's not us. So, so, so when you're tempted to go back to an old covenant-styled religion, don't be so historically stupid. Read what happens when there's not a mediator and you go to old covenant style religion. The people say, stop it, please. We're terrified. Please. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It's absolutely, totally paralyzing because you're dealing with a holy God who hates sin every day, the Bible says. And then it's heavenly because look at verse 22, new covenant. But you have come. Not only was there a hearing, there was no coming. Then you have come 
Isn't it astonishing that he's speaking as if it's already happened? You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn, that is the privileged, the the ones who will inherit, the saints who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you're meant to, to feel this and to say, ah, it's heavenly. That's right. It would be crazy for me to go back to the other system. This is the right one. Heavenly Jerusalem. It's mine in Christ and new covenant. Ah, yes. I will persevere if this is mine and it is in Christ. Isn't it intriguing that he says it speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And Abel in the Old Testament His spilt blood cries out for vengeance. Isn't it intriguing that the author to the Hebrews picks up that Old Testament narrative and says, oh, it's a little different. That's like Jesus' blood that cries out for pardon. Makes me want to go back and read that Old Testament text. It's different. What world do you want to be in? You want to be in the new covenant world. Christ is sufficient. Christ is it. It all was to point to him anyway. It's heavenly. Persevere in your heavenly vision or because of your heavenly vision. Christ is better. Christ is worth it. Mount Zion is where it's at, not Sinai. Verse 6 says perseverance, or it's going to teach us that perseverance is deadly serious. Verse 25 to 29, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's saying this is Jesus' word. These are his words that you're hearing in this letter. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Back to the idea we've seen already. It's not that, you know, God used to kind of had a bad attitude, but he got more sleep and kind of softened up. And now he's the nice guy, the big guy upstairs, because we're in the New Testament. In fact, if anything, it's the other way. Because now, while he's spoken in many ways through the prophets, now he's spoken climactically, magnificently, wonderfully in his son. Oh, worship him. But if you don't. He's a million times more angry than he's ever been before. Persevere. Persevere. Verse 26 says, At that time his voice shook the earth. Yeah, he was was something to be reckoned with then. He was frightful then. His voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. You ain't seen nothing yet. There will be absolute no stability at all whatsoever. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Yeah, the things of, may I suggest, Zion. 
the things that are heavenly. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God. How do we respond to this? What do we do? Let's offer to God acceptable worship, not old covenant world worship. Don't go there. Acceptable worship, new covenant worship that's directed toward Christ and his sufficiency. Acceptable worship with reverence or fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience. And for your long-suffering character. That you've shown yourself to be this great God. And, and for so many of us, we have this, this culturally conditioned, less than honest, less than truthful, less than biblical caricature of who you are. We, we've, we've relegated you to, to pet status. That you're so manageable and, and Lord, we've been lied to. And we've lied to ourselves and we've been lazy and we've made so many assumptions. At least so many of us have made so many assumptions about who you are. And thank you for being patient and long-suffering and, and even for allowing us to live long enough to be here today to read Hebrews 12 and to stop and think. It's evidence of your grace, evidence of your patience, that we can read of you, the God who is a consuming fire, the God who is to be feared, the God who is to be worshipped appropriately, truly. God, thank you for allowing us to even be here this morning, to hear this, to read this. I'm thankful for myself. I'm thankful for, for everyone who can hear this and realize that you are far greater than a manageable deity that we've thought up to make ourselves feel better. That you are to be reckoned with. That you are a startling God. That you indeed are a God who is unreachable. You are the God who promises to judge in a far more intense way than you ever have before. Even as we read here this morning. And thanks be to you. Praise be to your name. That this helps us to make even more sense of the great love with which you have loved us. That you have given us freely your son Jesus. That he is the great law keeper. That he did in fact fulfill that law of Sinai. That he did in fact pay the penalty we deserve for being lawbreakers, that he did in fact satisfy completely, exhaustively the judgment that we deserve, 
that he is our righteousness, that he is raised from the dead, that he ascended is at your right hand now interceding on our behalf. How great it is that today we can better understand our need for a priest than we've ever understood before, that he is our high priest, that his work is done, that he's worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our perseverance. And so according to your grace, according to the work of your Holy Spirit in us, according to the exhortations of your word that we've heard today, may we persevere in giving Christ the glory and honor that he so rightfully deserves. We love you, Lord. We love you because you loved us first. And that has more meaning today than it did before. In Jesus' name, amen.